You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 42 through 52. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, and Lord Jesus, we have crowned you as our king, and we know that we are yours forevermore, and we trust you, and it is sweet to trust you, but oh, for grace, Jesus, give us grace to know you more and more and more and more. Help us to know you more, help us to trust you more, help us to love you more as a part of sitting under your word for us this evening. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Man, I uh, forgot that we were going to be talking about music and congregational singing and everything when I was singing some of those first few songs with you all. But man, that was, uh, I don't know if it was for you too, but that was an emotional time for me in singing Christ is Mine Forevermore, um, knowing some of the weeks and that you have had um, in the past few months that many of you have had, and hearing your voices respond to the Lord Jesus in faith is good for my soul. Uh, the church is not just a bunch of individual people, nor is it us just scattered about the city singing individually or something, but even just our singing is a sweet gift to all of us as we worship our Lord together. So it is good to be with you all this Sunday. Many of you, just like last week, now another week, uh, some of you, the first time I'm seeing you for the first time in, goodness, almost a year in this building. So it is sweet to see you here this evening. Well, uh, by way of transition, as I've shared with many of you, I hate sand. Uh, That has nothing to do with transitioning anything, but uh, sand. This is a, uh, several of you recently just went to White Sands, and I am so happy for you. All New Mexicans, and in fact, all Americans should go to White Sands one time. 
to post it on your Instagram feed, uh, and then you've experienced it. It's just sand. Uh, it's great. It's great. But uh, look, we took our kids there like three years ago, uh, just days after we had bought a new minivan, uh, and this van uh, is like all black interior, black seats, black carpet, and I mean like it made me crazy when we got back into the van, like we had to stop at the car wash vacuums, like right away uh, to vacuum all the sand, sand everywhere. It just goes with you wherever you go. Uh, the beach is even worse. I know I'm a curmudgeon, but I hate the beach. Uh, I like the ocean, but I hate the beach. Uh, it's just the sand, especially like if you're trying to stay for hours and you're trying to make food for the kids and there's sand everywhere and then it's in your mouth and then it's everywhere. Uh, the ocean is great. One of my favorite things in the world is just to stand with my shoes off uh, at the water's edge and feel the waves come up and back again, feeling the ground beneath you like begin to disappear as your feet settle and nestle deeper into that wet sand. And all of this happens because of these waves, waves, the sheer physical force and power uh, as wind and storms and currents and tides all work together or against each other to push and pull and build water into something that is so relaxing on some days and even destructive and dangerous on others. The power of water, and especially waves, is what makes sand so fine and so soft, beating and crushing rocks and shells into like tiny microscopic marvels of creation. That is also why that microscopic, microscopic marvel is so annoyingly going with you everywhere you go, because it is so tiny and then it likes to hold on to things. But it is the constant swelling and crashing of these waves that has made and then altered the landscape of the entire world. And this is essentially how Paul understands the world as well. Not with like a continuous cycle of daily waves, but the swelling, crashing, and altering of just one wave. A tsunami that has permanently created or recreated an entirely new reality. Last week, after we saw Paul and Barnabas leave the Mediterranean island of Crete that Clint so helpfully helped us explore and understand in that first bit of Acts 13, they then set sail to the north, just a tiny bit to the northwest, and they land in Perga, a coastal city of modern Turkey. And apparently, they quickly move through Perga and head about 100 miles further north and inland into Antioch of Pisidia, or sometimes called Pisidian Antioch. Like we mentioned a few weeks ago, this place is different than the mega cosmopolitan city of uh, Antioch that's just around the elbow of the Mediterranean Sea in Syria. But here in Pisidian Antioch, Paul is going to preach and teach in the synagogue that all of Jewish history that has been swelling, building, and crashing then finds its rest, its crashed, uh, altered reality in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And so that's how we're going to understand the rest of Acts 13 this evening as well. History swells, history crashes, and history altered. Three points here that history has been building and swelling towards Jesus, then it crashes 
on his cross and resurrection, and then history is permanently altered. So let's first think about history swells. We read that in verse 14, they came to town, this Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. As will be the case for the rest of Acts, this will be Paul's inside-out strategy of evangelism in a new city. That is, he starts with any Jews in the city, and then he moves out from there. Part of this is a theological reasoning motive. It is to an ethnic people of Israel that God first covenanted himself and made kingdom promises to. And as we'll see, if Israel's Messiah king had indeed come, Paul wants to make sure that they know about him. He is the fulfillment of all of their hopes and their daily and weekly and annual practices. They need to know this. This is what Paul is getting after in Romans 2, that he says that it is to Israel, it is to the Jews that God has entrusted the oracles, has entrusted the teachings, the understandings, the right knowledge or access to God. So it is in that way that Jews have an advantage over other people. They ought to be already primed and readied for what Paul is about to preach, which then is a second more practical reason for Paul's inside-out approach. You might as well start with the low-hanging fruit. Paul is immediately going to pockets of people who have a shared language, have shared experiences, have shared theological values and expectations, the same worldview. The ground ought to be fertile for planting and harvesting of the gospel of Jesus. Whereas with Gentiles, with, with non-Jews, Paul has, he kind of looks out on a field that is full of boulders and rocks and weeds, like in Athens, as we'll see in Acts 17. It is not impossible to uh, plant and harvest there. It's just harder. But as we'll also be, begin and then continue to see, God often takes the harder route to show that it is his power of salvation and not just uh, social conditioning or human persuasiveness. So Paul and his guys, they go to this Sabbath gathering of the dispersed and pilgrim Jews here in Turkey, and they just sit down to be part of the meeting. This would be expected. Any uh, Jews who are coming through, they are all part of the same ethnic family, so certainly you are welcome here. And as was often the case after the readings, the synagogue rulers ask if anyone there or here, these new travelers, have anything to encourage the gathering with, just as Jesus did in Luke 4. And I can only imagine when the leader of this gathering asked these new brothers to stand up and share something that Paul just kind of smiled. And he, as he was standing up, he was thanking God for this opportunity to preach Christ and he stands up, and he begins to preach. This is the first recorded sermon of Paul's that we have in Acts. It's a long one. That's why I had uh, Zachary kind of pick up after that. We're going to go through his sermon together, but uh, we've already seen Peter preach two sermons in chapters 2 and 4, and then Stephen's sermon in chapter 7, but this is Paul's first recorded one, and this is what he's been preparing for. He stands up in verse 16 and he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He's not just there to like share an encouraging word that they might be able to uh, take with them on their week. He is there to speak for Christ and he wants them to listen with authority. And so since I had Zachary start reading after this sermon, let me read this first paragraph of what Paul stands up to say. 
Now, as, as you hear and as you read and as with all sermons, uh, pay attention to what Paul says and doesn't say and or what Luke seems to be highlighting in this sermon. So Paul stands up and he says in verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming... John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, Paul's intention here is more similar to Peter's in chapter 2 than perhaps Stephen's intention in chapter 7. Stephen was trying to move the spotlight off of the temple and on to Jesus, reminding the people that they even had a long track record of rejecting the messengers of God. Now, even though we can assume that Luke hasn't recorded every word of this sermon, this is undoubtedly a concise summary of something longer that Paul likely preached, but Paul doesn't spend very much time with each of these really long movements in Israel's history. He doesn't spend much time or emphasis with individual important characters. There is like one sentence or less for the whole period of the Exodus, of the judges, of Samuel, of Saul, and David, and on through John the Baptist. So what's his point? What is he trying to draw their attention to? Well, that the entire story of Israel has been swelling and building toward a pivotal moment and person in history. And the details of the history are important. Paul gives specific numbers of years. These events happened. These are not just like a collective origin story myth or something. No, but these are the very actions of God in time and space. And that this history is in fact the action of God. We have these uh, first person pronouns of he, or second person pronouns of third person pronouns, third person pronouns of he, but this is God acting all throughout this sermon. God chose the people of Israel and made them great. God let them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. God, he gave them their land. God gave them the judges until Samuel. And it is even God who gave the people Saul. Saul. It's in response to them asking for a king like the nations, but God even is giving them that. Now, let's spend just a second there. It's the instinct of most people throughout history to elevate and long for some kind of a strongman warrior who will fight the fights for the people, who will do the dirty work for the people, who will attract and absorb attacks and criticism on behalf of the people. 
It was true for Israel then, and it is just as true for us today. Perhaps even in who we want to represent us in politics. Not valuing or demanding humility or virtue, but really just demanding and valuing effectiveness. And what can this person or this group of people or this party or this organization, what can they get done? How and how effective will they be in delivering for us what we want? Now true, Israel, the covenanted people of God, is not the same thing as the United States, but writers and thinkers from Plato to James Madison have warned us that this kind of desire for a political strongman or a strong organization is just a poison pill for its people and for its government. So God, being gracious to Israel, removed Saul, who was leading out of a selfish, out of a defensive, and even a paranoid consolidation of personal power, and God graciously removes him and replaces this strong man Saul with David, a humble young boy, a man after my heart who will do all my will. But this David, whose deepest and most fundamental desires are aligned with God's, is still a man of monumental sin and failure. Which is why for Paul, even David, perhaps Israel's greatest hero, if you want to call him that, is merely a means to an end. It is a swelling of history. Verse 23, of this man, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And it's almost like Paul realizes that he just got ahead of himself. Like he couldn't mention David without immediately thinking about Jesus, but then he realizes he kind of jumped the gun. Uh, There's an important step back before we get to Jesus that he realizes he needs to swing back around to, a vitally significant character that he needs to pick up. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, not a warrior or a king, but a prophet. In Luke's first work, the Gospel of Luke, he tells us what John did and said. Luke tells us this in Luke 3, that he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John, preaching about making straight and accessible roads for the king to arrive in Jerusalem, and straight and accessible roads for him to bring his people back into his presence, out of exile, brought back to the dwelling place of the Lord. John's road-straightening work actually stands in stark contrast to Elymas, the magician from last week, who Paul accused of making straight paths crooked. John had straightened the work for people to know and come to Jesus, and Elymas was out here making them crooked again. But all of history, Paul is saying, is swelling and progressing toward the crashing of the wave in Jesus. Now, before we get to this crashing wave, can we just talk about history for a second? And the very fact that we think about history as progress. Most Westerners think about history as like a timeline. A timeline that progresses. 
But in fact, like half the world does not think about time that way. Instead of thinking about the world and the universe like a timeline, many people in the eastern part of the globe think about time as cyclical. Which actually, if you, it sounds strange to us as Westerners, but if you think about it, that perhaps isn't all that unreasonable. I mean, just look around at the world. The world operates in cycles. The sun seemingly goes over us every day, every single day. The sun and the stars move about in the sky the same way every single year. The weather, the leaves, the plants, and the trees, they they die and then regrow every single year, sometimes a bit differently than years past, but mostly the same. And in fact, as Ecclesiastes says, that there is nothing new under the sun. We can and perhaps should understand history as the same cycles of events and ideologies just dressed up in different costumes. But this is not the worldview of Paul or the Bible. But that if the cosmos is on a timeline, an an eternal timeline, which blows our minds, but it is still moving forward and toward a culmination. Now, the, the like Christ-haunted vestiges that still exist, um, that still kind of inform our Western society that history ought to be moving forward with progress, in fact, is why many people would call themselves today progressives. They see society moving forward. They want to be a part of society moving forward. But there is nothing about a universe that God does not exist in that demands societal progress. Gazelles do not demand progress when lions keep eating them. They just get eaten. The strong eat the weak. There's nothing inherently right or wrong about gazelles wanting progress. It's just the way things are. But in a universe where God has created humanity in his image, now there can be such thing as universal human rights. Without God's existence, without God's goodness, no, there can be so no, no such thing. Human rights that ought to be protected and preserved are actually a uniquely Christian idea. Not born out of the Enlightenment once we got rid of God, but they were just cultural leftovers from a time when folks more firmly believed in him. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be a Christian to want or demand universal human rights, but if that sounds too minimalistic or trivializing, well, I've got some good reading for you if you'd like. Uh, But Mark Sayers says of our present moment that Western culture now wants the kingdom without the king. We want all of the leftover goodness of the kingdom of Christ, but we do not want him. A just and merciful society without the one who can actually deliver it. And that is not only true for just the society out there who doesn't want Christ. It can be just as true for our desires as well if we are truly reflective and honest. That we want the benefits of Christ without submitting to Christ. We want the gifts of him, but we do not want him. The giver. But Paul does think that history has been moving somewhere. God, in fact, has been acting and moving it. The world has progressed. It is moving forward. Paul is a progressive. The wave did crash at the arrival of King Jesus. And so secondly now, 
history crashes. In verse 26, he goes on, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, hold on now, like, this is old news to us. We, we have, even if you aren't a Christian, you know that from very early age that Christians believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But here are Jews who are way across the corner of the Mediterranean Sea who maybe had never even heard of this traveling prophet rabbi, teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, much less that people were thinking that he was the Messiah, much less that he was crucified, and then much less that he was resurrected. So Paul is announcing good news here that they had perhaps never heard. We don't even have a category for this in our own understandings of who Jesus is, but Paul is announcing something brand new here. But Paul is in fact saying that the impulse and instinct for a strong man is actually a good one. Humanity does need someone to fight for them, to attract and absorb threats and attacks. The problem is that no human could ever be a strong enough strong man to protect and defend all of humanity. No human strong man is of enough purity to not become Saul or David or every other corrupt leader in human history. No human strongman is of enough strength not to just protect from outside threats, but to transform inward threats of sin and selfishness and rebellion. And no strongman is able to ongoingly live and protect his people because they all die. But Jesus Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, the greater son of David, came bringing a message of salvation, a message of repentance and forgiveness, but a message that Israel had rejected, a message that in fact required repentance, that required reflection and honesty, required a confrontation with the inward threats, not just looking to defend yourself from the outside threats. And unknowingly, which is remarkable for their knowledge of the scriptures, the Jewish leaders actually, Paul is saying, fulfilled the scriptures in putting him to death. It was by his death that God would bring forgiveness. It was the father's chastisement of the son that would bring us peace. It was by his wounds that we would be healed and by no other way. The centuries, the millennia, of swelling, of 
progressing, of building expectation, crashed on a Roman cross, wiping and cleansing the old reality away and opening and recreating a new one. God raised him to new life. Unlike how David died and his body deteriorated and decomposed into the ground, the body of Jesus was recomposed out of the ground that we might see him and share in him. And it is on this event that human history hangs. To paraphrase Tim Keller, the question is not if you like Christianity. The question is not, first, what you should do with what the Bible teaches about sexuality or gender. Those are good questions that we should deal with, that we should seek deeply to understand. But the question that saved my faith about a decade ago, when I was seemingly a few days away from rejecting it altogether, was the question, did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? If not, then nothing else matters. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if he did, then actually nothing else matters. But in fact, everything matters. In fact, eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead, as one of my seminary professors has said. It is through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, the risen one, the hinge of history that now makes your life that of a satellite, a satellite revolving around the gravitational force of the Lord Jesus, our King, rather than searching and never finding that which will revolve around you because you have no such gravity to attract and maintain meaning that will revolve around you. He is risen. And it is here that then Paul kind of like steps back a little bit and like twists his heels into the ground a bit, perhaps prays a quick prayer for help. He's presented Jesus as the risen Christ, but then he says in verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is like a two-verse summary of Paul's entire books of Galatians and Romans. Maybe this, like, this theology in its like earliest embryonic form, swimming around in Paul's head and his thinking. Galatians and Romans right here. Now, despite what you might be reading and hearing more and more lately from like revisionist authors and podcasters, uh, the good news of the gospel is about the forgiveness of sins. The good news of the gospel is of freedom in Christ. Is it, about, it is about of receiving the righteousness of God that the law could not provide. The law, like, like me giving you a can of lighter fluid and nothing else and asking you to go start a fire. The lighter fluid is not bad, 
but it has no inherent power to ignite your soul, to ignite life to God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive in Christ. Guys, this never gets old. I realize that so far this sermon like hasn't had a ton of application, especially for those of you who have already come to believe these things. But we cannot get bored of this glorious reality that Jesus, our King, is risen from the dead and is ruling this universe and our individual hearts and souls. We can't get bored with the life of peace that comes from this knowledge and the corresponding uh, loyalty to Christ and faith in Christ, but the, the ongoing repentance and joy that is experienced and felt by living in his kingdom, by following him. And that, that Jesus is risen, that brings application to every single aspect of our life. That the cross casts a deeper shadow into every nook and cranny. The cross casts a deeper shadow and informs and transforms motivates the excellence with which we go about our jobs and the the graciousness with which we treat our employees or our employers, the way we use and approach social media, the internet, and the entertainment to the glory of God, the way we use and approach our bodies and God's gifts to the glory of God, the way we date, the way we parent, the way we spend free time and spend money Every aspect of our lives is confronted and transformed by the reality that he is risen, that he is king, and that he loves you. That God loves you and wants what is best for you, wants your joy, wants your holiness. How do we know that God loves you because Jesus has died and has been raised to new life. And then, as I recently read from one pastor, Jesus doesn't say, take up my teachings and follow me. He doesn't say, take up my moral code and follow me. He says, take up my cross. We are not to merely adopt a set of beliefs or morals, but to die to all that opposes him. This pastor says we are to die to anything we want that he doesn't, to anything that we believe that he opposes, and to any agenda not in line with his priorities. Because he is risen, we follow him, trusting him that he is not only the God who gives crosses, but gives comfort, that gives life through death. Understanding and applying the gospel to all of these areas is, though, a community project. But as a church, we want no part of our lives untouched. We want the light of Christ, the light of Christ, the light of Christ, the light of Christ to push out the darkness. Confronting the self, comforting 
the brokenhearted. And this is the reality that has crashed onto a Roman cross and then pours out of an empty tomb. Which now gets us to the reaction of the people and a completely altered reality. Thirdly, now history altered. I haven't left a ton of time to work our way carefully through the response of Antioch, but that's okay because there will almost be a broken record type uh, kind of similar responses through various towns that Paul and Barnabas will enter into in the coming weeks of their journey and our journey through the book of Acts. But Paul first warns the people not to become like the people Habakkuk had once warned of in verse 40. He says, do not be a scoffer. Despite an incredible and undeniable work of God, do not respond with indifference. But no, respond in repentance, respond in faith. And many actually do not respond with scoffing or indifference, but they begged them to come back the following Sabbath and to teach again. After leaving the gathering, Luke tells us that many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas. They were hungry and thirsty for more. Tell us, teach us more of what God has done through Christ. Tell us and teach us more of how, how we must respond and follow him in this new reality. But then the next Saturday, the next Sabbath, when Paul and Barnabas return, this time, verse 44, with almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, the Jewish leadership is not happy. They were okay last week with a one-off small gathering of some teaching that sounded a little weird. But now they have started a movement and they are filled with jealousy. In verse 45, they begin contradicting Paul and reviling him, meaning they are likely publicly hating him, slandering him. To which Paul replies, likely with great sorrow, Something like, well, we, we won't be discouraged. We'll just now move away out from the synagogue and preach this same announcement of the king now to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. So Paul quotes from Isaiah again this time uh, in chapter 45 where he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the world. This is the same verse that Simeon back in Luke 2 quotes when Jesus was being presented at the temple. When the old man Simeon says, now I can die in peace, for I have seen the light to the Gentiles. Simeon said that Jesus is the light to the Gentiles, but Paul says that now God has made them a light to the Gentiles. So which is it? Yes. Again, the story of Jesus has now become the story of his people. There is bold preaching. There is strong compassion. And there is rejection. But before the Jewish leadership and the high-standing men and women of the city drive them out of town, Luke tells us in verse 48 that before that, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Just as in millennia past, when God had chosen people of one ethnicity to be his people, now God was choosing some people of all ethnicities to be his people. 
And note that Luke sees no contradiction or conflict with God's sovereign appointing of people to himself and their freely choosing volitional response of belief. Left to itself, the human will lies in bondage to choose and only choose the self and never to choose God, but in his great kindness and mercy. God appoints belief and frees his people to be and to choose that which he has created them to be. More on that coming. If that's scratching the surface on a, or opening a can on a bunch of questions, well, there's plenty more on that through the book of Acts. But unlike their forefathers who walked out of Egypt in freedom, the Jewish leadership is happy, happy to remain in bondage to the self, to keep attempting to make fire with only lighter fluid, to reject their Messiah and their king, to which Paul and Barnabas respond by shaking the Pisidian Antioch dust off of their feet before moving on to Iconium. Now, like so many other instances in the book of Acts, this isn't necessarily a model for us and how we ought to approach evangelism. Unless the Lord Jesus has personally set, set you apart as an apostle to the Gentiles, and the Spirit of the Lord then later set you apart through the commissioning of the church on a specific mission of movement, uh, you should not uh, shake the dust or sand off of your feet of someone who initially rejects the gospel. Praise God that many Christians in our own lives did not treat us that way. But in this instance, Paul and Barnabas have just, well, they've taken the van to the car wash vacuums after White Sands. They symbolically want nothing of this rejection of their beloved king to come with them or follow them as they continue on to Iconium, which we'll pick up next week. He is risen. Amen? Hey, let's practice for Easter. Uh, when I say he is risen, you can respond with, he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And if you are trusting him by faith, and if your sins are forgiven through Jesus, then you are risen in Christ. So let's live and respond this week as if that were true, because it is true. Let's pray for his help. Our God and Father, we confess that we have lived this week, we have lived so much of our life in scoffing indifference, in subconscious and even conscious demands for this world and the people in it to revolve around us as the center of gravity. God, forgive us. Lord Jesus, we trust in your work on our behalf. We are so thankful that you have loved us, that you have shown compassion on us, that you have shown patience with us, that you are leading us, that you are our substitute that you have brought the forgiveness of sins by your work on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us anew, that you would empower us this week. We could never live in such a way to bring 
Honor to you, O triune God, but you, O Spirit, you can ignite our souls. So we pray that you would help us to arise, that you would help us to stand and follow and walk with Jesus, who indeed has given us the keys to Zion City, that we might walk with him. O triune God, might we know you, might we commune with you, might we have great joy and contentment and encouragement by you. Help us to put sin to death and carry our cross in faith this week, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.